The industry is trying to understand the extent of Davis-Bacon regulations for federal construction coming out of the Labor Department. The final 812-page rule hasn't quite taken effect yet, but already contractors to the government or on federally funded projects have a slew of new risk and compliance obligations. We get more now from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. And so somebody's paying you by the hour, I hope, like they're paying construction workers to read this 800-pound rule. What, what's your takeaway from it? Rightly, I think a lot of the emphasis has been on the changes in methodology for how DOL calculates prevailing wages. But there are a lot of other effects on contractors that will affect how they comply with Davis-Bacon and the Davis-Bacon related acts, which apply to federal assistance agreements because there are various statutes that incorporate Davis-Bacon requirements. And so those requirements will will extend to Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act funded construction projects in addition to procurement contracts. But there are really five things that kind of stuck out at me, and that this is not an exhaustive list of changes, but the ways that in which the regulations expand the scope of coverage of Davis-Bacon requirements. They have new rules for incorporating updated wage determinations in existing contracts. And then there are provisions about incorporating the requirements of Davis-Bacon by operation of law if a clause or the wage rate is not included in the contract itself. I mean, basically, it's a way of getting contracts to use union wage rates. If you just scrape away all the nice language around it. This is what they want, right? There are effectively minimum wages for different classes of workers based on the types of construction and locality. And the administration's aim clearly is to increase wages for construction workers on federally funded projects. And so in part, they're doing that by expanding the scope to cover new types of work. So they specifically list various types of energy infrastructure and related activities as types of construction. So solar panels, wind turbines, broadband installation, and installation of electric car chargers are added to the list of construction because, of course, there's a lot of energy work in the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. There's also an expansion of the definition of the site of the work. The traditional rules do have some coverage of off-site work, but it's somewhat limited. Generally, it's, it's limited to the physical location where the construction will remain. But there's broader coverage in the new rule for secondary construction sites, which the Department of Labor indicated that it's intended to respond to technological developments that allow companies to do more construction of entire portions of public buildings off-site and then transport it to the site just to install it. And so the, the new regulations will provide for coverage of secondary construction sites where construction is for specific use in the building or work, and it's not simply reflecting a manufacturer construction of a product made available to the general public. Right. So this could be then the fabrication of, say, steel trusses, and instead of fabricate or instead of putting all the pieces together at, like a puzzle at site, it might be assembled somewhere else, put on a flatbed, and then the roof trusses of steel or something, I'm just making this up, would be delivered, but that would be covered the uh, the construction of those trusses. It gets to be a a little bit of a finer point because commercial fabrication plants with prefabricating housing components are not covered. The the rules are pretty complicated, but it's got to be a a larger portion of the building and not just a a 
a uh, prefabricated housing component. I'm just trying uh, to imagine what piece of a building that's, say, five stories tall that you can make somewhere else and bring to the site. But regardless, that's what the rules say. We'll have to leave the constructors for those details. Yes. And so there, there's broader coverage where where parts of the construction are, are uh, constructed off-site at locations that are dedicated exclusively or nearly so to the performance of the contractor project. Under the old rules or the current rules until the new rules go into effect, only offsite locations that are established specifically for, for the performance of the contract sure. or that are directly adjacent to the site of the work are covered by Davis-Bacon. So there are probably new contractors and new portions of the work that contractors are performing that will be considered Davis-Bacon construction now under the new rules. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. And you use the word by operation of law. What does that mean in a regulation? Many people who are involved in federal government contracts are familiar with the Christian doctrine, which is a doctrine that developed in the case law that recognizes that where there's a mandatory requirement to include a contract clause in a contract, and that expresses a significant or deeply ingrained strand of public procurement policy, that clause will be read into the contract even if it's left out by accident, because the contracting officer doesn't have authority to leave it out. The regulations now for Davis-Bacon will provide for incorporation of the Davis-Bacon requirements even if the clauses or the prevailing wage schedule isn't included in the contract. But contractors don't need to be too worried insofar as it also provides that contractors must be compensated for resulting increases in wages in accordance with applicable law. It does mean that there it can be administrative hassles of having to you know, make back payments, but they, they'll get paid at the end of the day. So in other words, the taxpayers are paying these higher wages for federal construction, basically, which I guess was always the case. That's right. All right. Uh, and certainly industry groups have been quick to say the taxpayers are the ones that are ultimately paying for wages for construction workers on federally funded projects. Got it. All right. And then what about uh, noncompliance? You found that there are some provisions for consequences of noncompliance with all of these provisions. That's right. So the rules were somewhat more relaxed or or less severe for violations of the Davis-Bacon related acts than for Davis-Bacon violations. So the rules that apply to uh, federal federally assisted contracts like grants and so forth uh, didn't provide for as harsh pen- penalties in some cases. So uh, the debarment standard, for example, under Davis-Bacon provided for a mandatory three-year debarment period. And whereas under Davis-Bacon-related acts, there was a maximum three-year period. And there's broader coverage of debarment where it, that ent- of entities in which the debarred entity has an interest and responsible offerors. And so the Department of Labor is bringing the rules for Davis-Bacon-related acts applicable to grants, cooperative agreements, loans, and loan guarantees, and so forth, into alignment with procurement, the procurement contract consequences, uh, which are pretty severe. And so w- where the the standards had been lower or relaxed, they're now as strict as as for Davis-Bacon. And that applies also to the debarment standard itself. Uh, there was a slightly lower standard requiring aggravated or willful violations rather than just disregard of obligations to workers or subcontractors. All right. It sounds complicated and expensive for the compliance regime that you're going to have to have, I guess, as a contractor. And whistleblower protections are also cited in this rule. Yes, along the same lines, there are there previously were not any explicit protections for whistleblowers, 
And by way of encouraging whistleblowers to step forward, now there are provisions protecting people that report violations or uh, issue complaints or otherwise cooperate with investigations or compliance actions or testify, protecting them from retaliation by their employer. All right. So if you add all of this up, then, I mean, what should federal constructors, contracting, construction contractors do now? Well, there are a lot of uh, complicated rules surrounding which specific workers and types of workers uh, and work are covered by the Davis-Bacon requirements and the consequences for not paying the prevailing wages in accordance with the requirements are pretty severe. So contractors need to look carefully at the extent to which the Davis-Bacon coverage is changed under the new rules uh, and, and be careful to comply in projects moving forward once these rules go into effect. Right. This rule is not totally in effect yet, but it's basically signed and sealed, just not delivered. Yes. The Federal Register indicated the scheduled publication date was August 23rd, and the rule will go into effect for most purposes 60 days after it's actually published in the Federal Register. There are a couple of exceptions where the changes in the updating of wage determinations in existing contracts go into effect without without that 60-day delay. But most existing contracts awarded before that effective date will be under the regulations that were in effect when they were awarded. All right. So you've got your Labor Day reading if you're a attorney for a contractor or you're a contractor. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We're glad you read this thing. So everyone else, well, they still have to. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. 
Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. 
And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. 
Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure's mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.